to the Center for the Study of World Religions. My name is Charles Stang, and I'm the director here. And it uh, is my privilege to welcome you uh, to this lecture by Professor Catherine Gerbner. Uh, but before I introduce her and the series of which this lecture is a part, I'd like to remind you to please silence your cell phones. And second, uh, although this doesn't seem to be a problem today, to refrain from blocking our two fire exits, uh, that one and the one behind you. So it's my pleasure to welcome Professor Catherine Gerbner to the center for a lecture entitled Christian Slavery, Conversion and Race in the Protestant Atlantic World. We're delighted to be co-sponsoring this event with the program in American Studies and the Charles Warren Center for Studies in American History. I'm especially grateful to my colleague, Vince Brown, and Arthur Patton Hawk, although he can't join us this evening. It's been a delight working with you, and I hope we can collaborate again in the future. Professor Gerbner's lecture is part of the Center's new series on race, religion, and nationalism. I'd like to just take a moment to read the description of that new series. Across the world today, we witness an alarming rise in old nationalisms, each of which deploys openly or covertly the rhetoric of race and racial hierarchy and of religion and religious hierarchy. We see this happening, for example, across Europe, in the Middle East, in India, and of course, in the United States, where white Christian nationalism now has a foothold in the executive branch of the federal government. This series seeks to critically examine this phenomenon at home and abroad, locally and globally. It seeks to ask such questions as, to what degree does religion fuel this racialized nationalism? In the American context, for example, how does Christianity support white nationalism? To what degree is racialized nationalism, such as white nationalism, a sort of religion itself with its own myths, rituals, and ways of life? To what degree are different racialized nationalisms affiliating with each other to form international networks? Previous speakers in this series include Kelly Brown Douglas, Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary. And I'm pleased to announce that our colleague from the Kennedy School, Professor Cornell Brooks, has agreed to give the annual Greeley Lecture in Peace and Social Justice, which will happen early in the spring semester. More details on that forthcoming. But tonight we have the pleasure and privilege of hearing from Professor Catherine Gerbner, who's no stranger to Harvard. She received her PhD here in the History of American Civilizations in 2013, and straightaway joined the faculty at the University of Minnesota, where she is a McKnight land-grant professor and assistant professor of history. Her research explores the religious dimensions of race, authority, and freedom in early America and the Atlantic world. Her lecture this evening is based on her new book of the same title, Christian Slavery, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2018. Her book shows how debates between slave owners, black Christians, and missionaries transformed the practice of Protestantism and the language of race in the early modern Atlantic world 
A reviewer in the Journal of the American Academy of Religion had this to say of her book. In looking at this relationship between white exclusivist Protestant supremacy, the formation of a paternalist Christian slavery that encouraged conversion of blacks but discouraged their literacy, and the role of Africans and African Americans in compelling a rethinking of the relationship between Christianity and slavery, Gerbner has given us a new synthesis that incorporates the Atlantic world perspective beautifully. And she has given us another version of the grim irony of Southern religious history. Professor Gerbner is currently at work on a few new projects. One entitled Constructing Religion Defining Crime examines how some non-European religions, particularly those that were practiced under slavery, have been excluded from the category of religion and criminalized over the past three centuries. A related project investigates the religious and medical practices of enslaved Africans in the Caribbean, paying particular attention to obia. She's also interested in how Afro-Caribbean ideas about healing, prayer, and worship influenced the construction of European categories such as religion and medicine. Those projects all sound fascinating, and we'd be happy to have you back at the center to hear more about any of them. But this evening, we're eager to hear about your recent book. So please join me in welcoming Professor Catherine Gerbner. Thank you so much, uh, Charlie, for inviting me to come speak today, um, and also for Vince to helping to put this together. Uh, thanks to Ariella Ruth for doing uh, so much to make it happen. And uh, yeah, it's thrilling to be back here at Harvard um, because much of the work for this book happened here uh, in Cambridge, and some of the people who are most influential uh, to the creation of the book and to help me articulate many of the ideas uh, that I developed are sitting here in this room. So uh, here we go. So what I want to do today um, is to basically give you a, a sense of the major arguments that I'm making in the book, uh, but, as, but as well as uh, some of the more subtle details. So I'm going to begin by talking about a source that I encountered uh, about 10 years ago uh, that got me thinking about some of the questions that fueled the research for this book. So, let's see. Wow, one second. There we go. Okay, so about 10 years ago, as I was just beginning to read some primary sources from early colonial Barbados, I came across what's actually a pretty well-known travel account written by an English man named Richard Ligon. Uh, and this is about the three-year stay that he had in Barbados in the late 1640s. So in one anecdote, Ligon described an encounter with an enslaved man who told him that he wanted to become a Christian. Ligon thought this was a great idea, and he promised to help a man, this man achieve his goal. So he later spoke to the, uh, this man's owner about the prospect of conversion. To Ligon's surprise, however, the slave owner replied, quote, the, the people of that island 
were governed by the laws of England, and by those laws, we could not make a Christian a slave. So realizing that the slave owner had misunderstood his intentions, Ligon then pointed out that his, quote, request was far different than that, and that he desired him to make a slave a Christian, not to make a Christian a slave. The slave owner, at last comprehending the issue at hand, responded that, being once a Christian, he could no more account him a slave, and so lose the holds they had of them as slaves by making them Christians, and by that means should open such a gap as all the planters in the, in the islands would curse him. So there's a lot going on in this quotation. And it struck me as strange for um, a, number, a number of reasons. So first of all, because despite this slave owner's protestations, Christian slaves were very easy to find in the Atlantic world. From Algiers to Mexico City, enslaved Christians labored on plantations, in workshops and in households, in cities and on rural plantations. In the Americas, Christian slaves were usually of African descent, while in North Africa, Europeans were uh, captured and enslaved on the Barbary Coast. Christianity, and specifically Protestantism, would eventually come to play a central role in the lives of enslaved men and women in North America and the Caribbean. In the antebellum United States, Protestantism was a core feature of pro-slavery ideology, and Southern planters claimed that their plantations were modeled on the slave-owning households of the Old Testament. So given this overwhelming evidence for Christian slavery, why did the 17th century English planter object when Richard Ligon asked him to introduce one enslaved man to Christianity? So my research began in part by trying to answer this question. And in order to do so, I began to examine the relationship between missionaries, slave owners, and enslaved men and women in the Protestant Atlantic world. I chose to examine the period between the mid-17th century and the mid-18th century, because this is when Protestant nations first began to settle colonies in the Americas and to participate in the Atlantic slave trade on a systematic scale. It's also when Protestant missionaries really began to consider the implications of slavery for Protestantism. Um, and I decided to focus on the three Protestant denominations that actively proselytized to enslaved Africans during this time period. And really, there were only three, so made things easier. Those were the Quakers, the Anglicans, and the Moravians. I quickly realized that geographically, the Caribbean was the center of the most furious debates about the relationship between Protestantism and slavery. And it was the site of very important mission stations. So in my research, I focused on the islands of Barbados, the Leeward Islands, and the Danish West Indies, although at the same time, I tried to maintain a very Atlantic focus, examining the movement of people and ideas from the Caribbean to North America and across the Atlantic Ocean. So my goal was to answer three broad questions about the relationship between religion and slavery in this period. <clears throat> so first of all, what role did religion play in the foundation of Protestant slave societies in the Americas? And sort of the connection here is why did most Protestant slave owners resist slave conversion? Second, how did the encounter with Atlantic slavery force Protestants to shift their beliefs about true Christian practice? And third, when and why did enslaved and free blacks choose to partake in, Christ in Protestant rituals? 
So in my talk today, and I will give you a little outline, um, I'm going to give you a sense of the, my major arguments, and then I'm going to talk a little bit more about my methods and especially my sources. And I will then have a section um, about a sort of a smaller piece of the project where I think the sources are especially rich. Um, and I do that also because I think it gives a sense of the texture, the day-to-day -day level on which these big ideas were being debated. Um, so what did I conclude? So first, um, what my book argues is that religion, and specifically Protestantism, was central to the formation of slave societies in the British, the Danish, and Dutch American colonies. So um, many scholars have sort of seen the Protestant Caribbean in particular as irreligious. Um, but I show that Anglican, Lutheran, and Dutch Reformed churches were fundamental to the maintenance of planter power. So I argue that slave owners, uh, slave-owning legislators more specifically, uh, developed an ideology that I decided to call Protestant supremacy. And I argue that Protestant supremacy undergirded and supported these brutal regimes of slavery. So what do I mean by Protestant supremacy and how did it develop? So very briefly, and we can come back to this, um, I found that in the 17th century, the slave-owning elite believed that their status as Protestants was inseparable from their idea, their identity as free Europeans. So they created laws and churches that codified Protestant status as a sign of mastery. And they used the established churches as sites for both punishment and politics. So what I saw in my research, especially um, in my examination of the legal archives, is uh, that the Anglican and Dutch Reform um, lawmakers separated masters from their enslaved heathen laborers and marked Europeans as both Protestant and free. This association between Protestantism and freedom was so strong that most slave owners came to dismiss the idea that enslaved people were even eligible for a conversion. So in 1663, for example, uh, the Assembly and Council of Barbados refused to pass a law, quote, recommending the christening of Negro children and the instruction of all ne uh, adult Negroes. By 1680, the Barbadian planter's stance against slave conversion had become even more pronounced. <clears throat> so when William Blathwaite, on behalf, on behalf of the Lords of Trade and Plantations, wrote to the merchants of Barbados uh, to inquire as to, quote, the unhappy state of the Negroes and other slaves in Barbados by their not being admitted to the Christian religion, the so-called gentlemen of Barbados explained that the conversion of their slaves to Christianity would not only destroy their property but endanger the island inasmuch as converted Negroes grow more perverse and intractable than others. So I found this to be very striking. And I, and I found the similar sentiments throughout the, um, the, sort of the slave societies, the Protestant slave societies. And what I argue in the book is that Protestant supremacy uh, should be understood as the predecessor of white supremacy, which was the ideology that emerged after the codification of racial slavery. And um, I decided to call this Protestant supremacy rather than Anglican supremacy or Christian supremacy because I found that the ideology was present 
throughout the Protestant American colonies. So not everyone, but, uh, but especially places like the Danish West Indies, Dutch Curacao to Virginia. So it's, it, it exists in colonies that aren't ang aren't, are not necessarily Anglican. Um, but so I did think that Protestant supremacy was the best term to describe what I thought was a really important uh, sort of pattern that I, that I found throughout the Caribbean and the, the slave societies of the South. So right, I argue that it's most likely to develop and uh, sort of become, uh, become central in places where the enslaved population was larger than the non-enslaved population. So places like Barbados, Jamaica, South Carolina. Um, and Protestant planters in these regions constructed a caste system based on Christian status in which you know, heathenish, heathenish slaves were afforded no rights or privileges while Catholics, Jews, non-conforming Protestants were viewed with suspicion and distrust, but granted uh, more protections. So as a result of sort of this creation of Protestant supremacy, when Protestant missionaries arrived in the plantation colonies, hoping to convert enslaved Africans to Christianity, and this really doesn't start happening until the 1670s, uh, they encountered slave societies that had already developed churches that are founded on exclusion. Slave owners regularly attacked missionaries, both verbally and physically, and they blamed the evangelizing newcomers for slave rebellions, regardless of evidence to the contrary. So I argue that Quaker, Anglican, and Moravian missionaries responded to this hostile environment by articulating and promoting a vision of Christian slavery, this is where Christian slavery comes from, uh, that sought to not just reconcile Protestantism with bondage, but also to um, alleviate the fears of slave owners that they might lose their property if that property converts to Christianity. So at its most basic level, Christian slavery is an attempt to actually uh, Christianize and reform slavery. Protestant theologians and missionaries drew on biblical descriptions of slavery as well as the ideal of the godly household to encourage slave owners to assume responsibility for the spiritual lives of their enslaved laborers. They also argued that Christian slavery had a long and well-established history in Europe um, and the Catholic American colonies. As I said before, there were Christian slaves all over the place. <coughs> as missionaries uh, continued to face opposition from slave owners, however, the meaning of Christian slavery starts to shift. Um, and what I saw in my, my uh, records was that Quaker, Anglican, and Moravian missionaries sort of increasingly, as they're met with more and more opposition, they begin to uh, emphasize more and more the beneficial aspects of slave conversion, um, arguing that Christian slaves would be more docile, um, harder working than their quote unquote heathen counterparts. And these aren't new arguments, but they, they uh, sort of assert them with a new kind of force. And they also, um, I found examples of missionaries really lobbying to try to pass legislation that confirms the legality of owning black Christians. Right? So this is sort of another iteration of Christian slavery. So while the Protestant missions to slaves have um, often been examined within the context of anti-slavery thought or sort of proto-anti-slavery thought, what I argue here is that it's actually more accurate to 
understand this conflict between missionaries and slave owners as a clash between Protestant supremacy, which excluded enslaved people from Christianity, and Christianity, which sought to include slaves within the Protestant community. So this isn't really about pro-slavery and anti-slavery in this period. Um, I, I, I don't think those terms are, um, they're not salient when it comes to this 17th century period. So I emphasize the ways in which Quaker, Anglican, and Moravian missionaries really fought hard to accommodate slavery to their Christian principles. Um, and I argue that their efforts uh, bore fruit in legislation, affirming that uh, Protestant status was, was compatible with perpetual bondage. Um, this is perhaps the most surprising that the Quakers are included in this story, um, because of course they are most uh, closely associated and obviously of central importance to the abolitionist movement of the 18th century. Um, and I'm happy to talk about that, uh, that more later. I actually got into this, the other way I got into this project aside from the way I started was by uh, studying the origins of Quaker anti-slavery, and I got far more interested in the, the Quakers who were owning slaves in Barbados than the Quakers who were trying to argue against them. Um, and so there is this really important other story uh, when it comes to Quaker engagements with slavery. And I'll say, you know, the Quaker, the Quaker slave owners, George Fox, you know, the, the founder of Quakerism, you know, he's radical in his thoughts about slavery, uh, but it's certainly not anti-slavery. It's radical at the time to argue that enslaved people should be introduced and brought into Christian communities. Um, and I think you know, we need to recognize sort of both the radicalism of that statement while also its clear limitations. <coughs> so this gets me to my next point. Uh, which is that one of the major goals of my research was to show the centrality of religion to the history of race. Uh, I'm certainly not the first person to do this. Um, I'm building on the work of many really excellent historians um, who have shown how religion was in many ways used as a proto-racial category to distinguish masters from slaves. So while Protestants in 1650 tended to use religious justifications for slavery, um, for example, it's legitimate to enslave heathens, but not to enslave Christians. Protestants in 1750 uh, had begun to articulate new justifications for slavery. And the most important thing here is really the development of whiteness as a category, um, a legal category especially. Um, because what happens over this time period is that whiteness rather than Christianity becomes the most important indicator of mastery. Um, and I have one chapter in my book where I look specifically at the emergence of the word white in the legal archives of Barbados uh, and sort of juxtapose it with um, the baptism of enslaved and free people of color uh, and showing how there is a, basically as soon as there's a, enough free, uh, free black Christians uh, on the islands, the, the term white becomes is specifically replaced as the word Christian in the law books. And uh, you see the very first law that, that clarifies that only white people can vote in elections, for example, um, that hadn't been clarified before 1697. And that's the date that, where it's introduced. And 
12 years later, they come back and they say, and just in case anyone didn't know what we mean by white, we mean that you can't have any ancestry that's African. So it's, the, it's clearly, this is a live topic of debate um, in Barbados and elsewhere in the Atlantic world. And what I try to do is really show how, first of all, that things like you know the creation of whiteness were a real choice that you know slave-owning legislators made to um, introduce this language into law books, but also how this is related to uh, sort of everyday interactions between slave owners, missionaries, and enslaved and free black people. <coughs> so um, the third sort of big argument that, that I try to develop in this book uh, is about sort of the history of black Protestantism. Um, and oftentimes, you know, the, the sort of standard, the standard story here begins with the Great Awakening of the 1740s. Um, and I'm trying to tell a, a different story. So uh, what I'm looking at is the significance of Afro-Protestant conversion before the evangelical revivals of the mid and eight, uh, late 18th century. And I, and I also make a, make an argument saying that I think historians have overstated the significance of emotive worship for the appeal of Christianity. So this is an important feature of evangelical Protestantism, but what I think it misses and what I saw in my records was the extremely powerful draw of literacy um, that these early missionaries offered. And uh, I also emphasize the ways in which there was a lot of disagreement between black Protestants and missionaries about the meaning of scripture and Christian ritual uh, during this early colonial period. Um, and I think that these debates and exchanges, you know, and I'll, I'll talk about these more in the sort of the case study about marriage, reading, baptism, honor, uh, really transforms the practice of Protestantism as it moved across the Atlantic. So a little bit about methods and sources um, you know, I, the, the approach that I take is very trans-regional. So the concept of the Atlantic world, oh, I, look at this. Um, I forgot I did that part. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's absolutely essential to my narrative. So, you know, Quakers going from England to Barbados, up to New England, um, Anglicans following a similar trajectory, um, inter-European travel, so uh, movement of the Moravians, that's that last arrow to the far right. Um, headquarters are in Eastern Saxony. Uh, they're moving to Copenhagen, from Copenhagen to uh, St. Thomas. And then, of course, the forced migration of West and West Central Africans to the Caribbean, um, and in some cases, back to Europe. So um, here, I'm really trying to emphasize how uh, these individuals, uh, individuals, cultural practices, and ideas were circulating. Um, and how this, these networks were changing the relationship between religion, slavery, and race um, in the early Americas. And um, I also try to contextualize these Protestant missions within the broader history of Catholic empire and slavery. So um, I try to be attentive to the, to the fact that Protestant missions to, to slaves emerged after Catholic slave societies had existed for over a century. Um, and Protestant missionaries has, you know, of course, an awkward relationship with uh, their Catholic counterparts um, because they both envied them for having more, you know, more success and, you know, derided Catholic baptism as, of course, you know, not real. 
Um, so I, I really, the, and the other thing that I try to show, I have one chapter that's focused on the island of St. Uh, Christopher, just split into French and, and uh, English sections. So, you know, you have these people, you know, Protestant missionaries and um, Protestants are literally living within the context of Catholicism all the time. And I think that this is a really important aspect um, in driving the conversations about Protestantism and slavery. So again, you know, the, I, found it, I, I thought that it was really important here in this type of project to be multi-denominational and multilingual. So, right, I, I chose the Quakers, Anglicans, and Moravians um, because these are really the only Protestant denominations that expressly say they're going to try to convert enslaved people to Christianity during, these period, during this period. Um, but I think that the sort of multi-denominational approach uh, is important for sort of linking these denominational histories that they, they just still tend to be kept separate um, in a lot of scholarship. And I also was able to look at interdenominational rivalry. You know, like the, one of the first Anglican um, writers who's writing about Protestantism and slavery, he starts his book by quoting George Fox, the Quaker, you know, and, and saying, look, these Quakers are trying to evangelize to slaves. We should be ashamed of ourselves that we're not doing it. So really, this, this type of rivalry was, was important in, in, in developing these ideas. So then the other thing that this gets me to is that it really um, provides an opportunity to have a, a diverse and multilingual source base. Um, so here we go. You know, I've already referred to a few sources that I used, um, such as Ligon's travel narratives. Um, I also was looking at, uh, as I sort of uh, briefly mentioned, baptismal registers from places like Barbados. And they allowed me to get some texture for, or at least sort of try to understand uh, the choices of enslaved and free people of color in that context. Um, that said, you know, of the sources that I was able to read, um, those from the Moravian church are the, by far the most detailed in their descriptions of everyday um, life for enslaved uh, men and women. And so, they allowed me to make a, a different kind of argument than I was making earlier in the book, um, where I relied mostly on English, um, English sources and Anglican sources and Quaker sources. So a few examples of some of the, the sources from the Moravian archives, which are all kept in a small archive in rural eastern Germany. You know, it's, it's so weird that where you, where, you're, where you find some of the richest sources on the Caribbean. Um, but I really think that they offer like, new possibilities for understanding black Christian practice um, and, uh, and slavery in the Americas. So a couple examples. Um, you know, this, most of the examples are like this. This is a letter written by a missionary. Um, this one is a list of all of the uh, converts in the, on the island of St. Thomas. And so it lists the, the names of the enslaved people, but also where they came from in Africa and where their parents came from in, in many cases, in addition to a brief comment on, um, on what they were like. So, you know, for this period, <laughs> documents like this provide some new opportunities uh, for studying the history of slavery. Um, there are also, of course, 
some letters that are written by um, enslaved and free blacks themselves, which is very rare for this period and exciting to be able to use um, in research. So this one is, uh, for example, written by an Afro-Caribbean man named David um, in sort of Dutch and Dutch Creole, which was the lingua franca of the Danish West Indies. And it's addressed to the Danish West India Company, that, uh, which is the company that owns David and the other letter signers. And I mean, this particular letter um, sort of thanks the company for the opportunity to know Jesus Christ. Right? So there are different things, you know, it's, you wish you could, you're always wishing like, oh, but why couldn't you just give me your whole life story and, you know, um, your motivations, but you do, you, <laughs> you do with it what you can. Uh, but this one's interesting because uh, in the bottom left corner, uh, you can see that a Moravian, so a Moravian scribe has written an extra note. Um, it says, this is actually David's handwriting. So, so I always love these like extra notes on the archival sources. Um, so these documents, as I mentioned, are all in the Moravian archives in Herrenhut, Germany. Um, and now what I want to do is sort of zoom in a little bit um, on the, the story that I tell about the, the beginnings of the Moravian missions. Um, and I do so because I think that we can learn a lot about sort of these big ideas that I'm trying to talk about, Protestant slavery, uh, Protestant supremacy, Christian slavery, um, the development of racial categories by really doing sort of a micro-historical uh, approach and trying to figure out what's happening um, day to day. So, um, before I do that, I will mention exactly where this research fits into the larger book. Uh, so I think I have, yes, my chapter. So the first few chapters um, of the book focus on the Quaker and Anglican missionaries. Um, and I look at how they sort of challenged the culture of slavery that had developed um, in the Protestant slave colonies. So actually, the first, uh, the first chapter is sort of a big overview of this rela the relationship between Christianity and slavery, and try to do like a, you know, a millennium. Um, and then the, the, second, the second chapter really explains this concept of Protestant supremacy. And then you get into some of the missionary stories. <coughs> so then chapter four looks at this development of whiteness. Um, how it developed into a, uh, a legal term, um, and I argue that it was a consequence of slave conversion. And then the last two chapters incorporate the Danish West Indies into, this, uh, into the narrative, and I look at the Moravian mission to St. Thomas. So in, um, as I discuss the Moravian mission, I'll be talking about uh, two different Protestant churches. The Lutheran, um, which was the predominant church in Saxony where the Moravians were headquartered, uh, and then the Dutch Reformed, which was the established church on St. Thomas. And I'll also talk about pietism, uh, the reform movement within the uh, Lutheran church that sought to emphasize the experience of conversion rather than dogma and learning. So a, a, a very brief sort of introduction to the Moravian church. Um, they saw themselves as the oldest Protestant denomination in Europe, um, although they weren't technically founded till 1727. They claimed descent from the 14th century martyr Jan Hus, um, but they were also deeply influenced by German pietism. So um, as I mentioned before, pietists critiqued the formality of the church and sought to bring back what they called the religion of the heart. 
Um, and this sort of curious combination was made possible by Count Sinzendorf, uh, so was the German nobleman who allowed a group of persecuted Moravian and Bohemian brethren to settle on his estate in Eastern Saxony, which is why I have to go to Eastern Saxony to do my research on the Caribbean. Um, so Sinzendorf and his community of refugees you know, experienced a religious revival that marked sort of this founding of the modern Moravian church. And almost immediately afterwards, uh, members of the Moravian church began to travel around Europe um, and soon around the world to spread word of their religious awakening. So how did they end up in St. Thomas and the Caribbean? Um, so in 1731, Count Sinzendorf traveled with David Nietzschmann, who was a Moravian carpenter, to attend the coronation of the King of Denmark. And there they met um, Anton Ulrich, who was an Afro-Caribbean servant who had accompanied his uh, master to Copenhagen. So unfortunately, there are no images of Anton Ulrich. So um, I've instead put up a letter that was written by him. It's actually, well, recopied. And I'll come back to that in just a minute. But just to introduce you to Ulrich. So he had been born enslaved in St. Thomas. Um, but he was baptized sometime after his arrival in Europe. Soon after his baptism, he was then manumitted. And Ulrich's conversion to Christianity really represented a model of slave conversion that embraced both spiritual and earthly salvation. And so under this uh, schema, sort of favored slaves could be singled out for attention and education, and uh, baptism and manumission sometimes followed. And it was really this conception of conversion that was the reason for you know, the the creation of the ideology of Protestant supremacy. Um, but there are then, at the same time, uh, examples of these sort of individual uh, slave owners and individual enslaved people who did actually sort of um, connect in their practice the uh, conversion and, and freedom, sort of earthly freedom. So it may be due to the connection between Christianity and freedom in Ulrich's case that Ulrich sort of begged the Moravians to bring the gospel to his sister, Anna, who was enslaved on St. Thomas. Nietzschmann um, relayed this news to Sinzendorf, uh, who saw the potential for a missionary venture. And soon thereafter, Sinzendorf invited Ulrich to visit the Moravian settlement in, in Herrenhut. Uh, once there, Ulrich repeated his description of St. Thomas and told the brethren about the misery of uh, enslaved people and their ignorance of Christianity. And also told them that their mass, the slave owners were openly against uh, allowing enslaved people to access Christianity. Uh, so again, here we have another scribe adding, adding to the letter. So the underlines part is saying uh, that Anton Ulrich uh, provided the opportunity for the St. Thomas mission. And it's this sort of uh, conscious placing of Ulrich within the um, sort of the Moravians, the Moravian uh, church's history of their own missions. So one of the brethren um, who was in the audience and heard Ulrich was uh, named Leonard Dober, who wrote that he couldn't stop thinking um, about the slaves. And he decided that he wanted to give himself as a slave and and, and quote, tell the slaves on St. Thomas what he knew about our Lord. I found this interesting because um, at Dober's willingness to become a slave in order to carry the gospel to St. Thomas revealed a conception of slavery that uh, wasn't based solely on racial difference. Um, 
Instead, slavery was a malleable category that could be entered into by choice or force. So uh, his plan to become a slave, however, was not put into action because when he and uh, Nietzschmann, who also decided he wanted to become a missionary, traveled to Copenhagen and route to the West Indies, they were told that Europeans would not be taken into slavery. Um, and upon hearing this, the two missionaries decided that they could try to become craftsmen or something um, in order to, to support themselves while evangelizing to the enslaved. And, you know, when I was reading some of the uh, texts by Christian Oldendorp, who was a uh, Moravian historian and sort of early ethnographer, you know, he was writing 30 years after Ulrich's visit to Herrenhut, but he wrote, the thought that they, as in... Um, Dober and Nietzschmann would have to become slaves was terrifying, but also false and unnecessary. It was, well, it was well known that no whites could be made or taken as slaves, and even if he wanted to become one, he wouldn't be allowed. I think we can learn from Oldendorf's uh, horrified reaction to the idea that white Christian missionaries could be slaves, and that this is an indication of how the conceptions of race and slavery would change even within the Moravian church. Oldendorp's own experiences in the Danish West Indies in the 1760s gave him a thorough, thoroughly racial understanding of slavery. And his disbelief uh, that whites could be slaves was a consequence of Moravian involvement in the Caribbean slave society. In 1731, however, neither Dietz, uh, Nietzschmann nor Dober um, had ever seen a Caribbean slave society firsthand, and their only window into that world was Anton Ulrich. So, Dober and Nitschmann do uh, make it to St. Thomas in 1732. Um, and there, they meet a small number of free Christian blacks and enslaved converts, um, many of whom had followed a path similar to that of Anton Ulrich. Often you know, favored by their masters, they were able to receive some education, which led to baptism and, in some cases, uh, manumission. While the, Marie, uh, the missionaries showed interest in these individuals, they questioned whether they were true Christians. So I think this complexity in the history of uh, black Protestantism is really so important. We often miss this tension um, between uh, black Christians who had converted in sort of the, in, in this way in which they were eventually manumitted uh, and sort of these evangelical missionaries like the Moravians who have a different idea about the relationship between slavery and freedom. So a few weeks after their arrival, for example, um, Dober and Nietzschmann visited, quote, a Moor who had lived in Berlin for 18 years. They noted that he, quote, immediately began to speak to us out of the Bible and that he had a lot of knowledge, but they concluded that he was, quote, completely drowned in the lusts of the flesh. Nietzschmann told him that not all of those who are baptized could be considered true Christians, after which this man became agitated and annoyed. A few days later, Dober and Nietzschmann met another educated black man who they described as a, quote, well-known Moor. Again, Dober and Nietzschmann criticized this black Christian and told him that, quote, the new birth was the most important thing, and without that, no one would see the Lord. He would have to give more effort than just learning everything by heart. And in an intriguing comparison, they added, uh, the black Christians place as much learning, importance on learning as the Lutherans do on going to church and communion. So by connecting the black Christian interest in learning to the Lutheran emphasis on church and communion, D 
Dobrin and Nietzschmann applied a pietist critique of religion to black Christianity in St. Thomas. And they implied that the desire to learn, like the Lutheran emphasis on church and communion, placed too much focus on form and too little on heart. Um, but perhaps more important is the fact that the missionaries didn't con connect Christianity to manumission. So while many of the black Christians had earned their freedom after receiving Christian education and baptism, Dober and Nishman defines true slavery as spiritual. So for the missionaries, freedom meant conversion, not manumission, a position that was most likely resented by uh, uh, blacks who either hoped to or had earned their freedom after conversion. So instead of promising manumission, uh, these Moravian missionaries emphasized the, de the danger of inner slavery to the small number of converts who showed an interest in them. So this is uh, Anton's si uh, sister, Anna, visited them uh, on January 17, 1733. She complains that the overseer treated her too harshly. Um, the missionaries refused to comfort her or take any action on her part, telling her instead, quote, this could be a great opportunity to truly call on God so that she could be freed from her inner slavery since her outward slavery was of little consequence. And the missionaries' definition of true fre freedom had both behavioral and spiritual elements. So aside from experiencing a new birth, truly free Christians were expected to maintain monogamous marriages, refrain from bodily sins, um, and the missionaries condemned the very common practice of taking multiple partners um, or having more than one wife, a position that was seen by both blacks and whites on St. Thomas as unreasonable. Non-monogamous family structures were common among uh, many enslaved Africans, while white masters often took advantage of their power to initiate or coerce um, the enslaved into sexual relationships, meaning that monogamy was largely a foreign concept on the islands. So in a series of conversations with a free black named Alexander, for example, the missionaries tried to convince him that he should take only one wife. Reading from Paul, they classed polygamy with prostitution and warned him to stay true to one woman. Alexander, who was clearly incredulous, said, quote, all the citizens and masters who are called Christians engage in such behavior. The missionaries insisted that, quote, these men did not belong to Christ but to the devil. Dober and Nietzschmann's standards graded on Alexander, and after several months of regular meetings, Alexander lo lost his temper with the missionaries, called them papists, and told him, no one can live up to your expectations. So, while their rigid theology and sort of fixed standards um, of morality often undermine their appeal to the enslaved, it's also important to recognize what they did have to offer. So first of all, enslaved men and women were, as I've mentioned, extremely eager to access the written word. So in a place where literacy and books were carefully guarded by the master class, the missionaries introduced their pupils to scriptural texts and they taught them how to read. Um, and actually, in this case, they also taught writing. For the enslaved, books were not just sources of religious inspiration. They were also physical objects that had spiritual and economic power. It's in a practical sense, it's text-inscribed paper that could prove one's freedom um, or one's status as a Christian. A typical Moravian meeting included the recitation of scripture. Um, and by organizing meetings this way, missionaries reinforced their status as readers. In one meeting, for example, the missionaries read Christ's Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus advocates turning the other cheek. 
The reading led into a discussion of how one could accept being hit. Um, and Emmanuel, uh, who is an enslaved Creole man, objected to this interpretation and argued that he could never turn the other cheek because, quote, it would cost him his honor if he didn't defend himself. When the missionaries explained to him that the Lord wanted it that way, quote, res Emmanuel responded with a compromise. He decided that he would ask God to spare him from the possibility of getting into, in a fight, and instead he would prefer to stay home and learn. I think Emmanuel's interactions with the missionaries provide some insight into this negotiation over Christian practice, the significance of literacy, and the construction of, in this case, enslaved Christian masculinity. <clears throat> Emmanuel could redefine both Christian practice and a sense of honor to create a literacy-based Christian identity. And Emmanuel's approach gained him both respect and status within the Moravian congregation. So 14 days after this discussion, he was one of the uh, first three individuals baptized in St. Thomas. Um, he was baptized Andreas, and he went on to become a leading male elder on the islands. He then traveled uh, first to Pennsylvania and then to Europe, where he died in 1744. And in 1747, he was commemorated as, quote, the first believing Negro in Johann Valentin Haidt's painting, The First Fruits, which is, this is a detail, and we'll come back to it later. Aside from the promise of literacy, the Moravian missionaries could be seen as potential advocates. So while they consistently refused to defend the slave, uh, enslaved people against the wrath of their masters, they did provide some support to enslaved people in their relationships with other slaves. So there's one example where Anna, uh, Anton's sister, complained that her husband was holding um, dances in their home and that this was a, quote, great burden for her. So while uh, Dober, the missionary, interpreted um, Anna's call for help as a sign of her conversion, her intentions were likely more complex than they realized. Um, because by persuading the missionaries to lobby on her behalf, she gained influence over her husband and also convinced the missionaries of her religious sincerity. And finally, the missionaries were unique in their treatment of the enslaved as spiritual equals. And they provided an alternative religious community unlike any other available on the islands. Um, and over time, what you see is the Moravians also adapted their theology to better accommodate the pressures of slave life and the realities, um, the, the realities of, uh, of slavery. So uh, one example of this is the debates on the meaning of marriage, uh, which was a constant topic of debate. And so initially, missionaries insist that a, mar a marriage should be monogamous, uh, between one man and one woman. Um, enslaved converts actually pushed back on this uh, conception, and they started to use their reading skills to consult the Bible um, and challenge missionary interpretations of scripture. Uh, so during one conference, uh, you know, of course these are the missionaries writing this, some black Christians, quote, searched in the Old Testament, pointing out parts that seemed to justify their polygamous practices. So despite the missionaries' resentment of these challenges, they did actually change their policy on marriage. In 1749, during another set of conferences, the brethren um, concluded that men with more than one wife would be allowed to join the congregation, uh, but they forbid converts from taking any more spouses after their baptism. Um, and they also forbid a man who had two wives from divorcing either wife after his baptism. So there's like sort of fascinating uh, consensus that they that they reached. Um, they also accounted for the possibility, in fact, the the very the very real reality 
um, that a couple would, uh, would be broken up against their will. Um, and so as these changes reveal, the missionaries become increasingly flexible um, and they adapt their sort of official theology to uh, the pressures of slave life in the Caribbean. Now, when Dober and Nitschmann returned to Germany, they brought with them both bodily and spiritual convictions that helped to shape the aims and policies of future Moravian missionaries, missions. So uh, one thing was that they re revealed a surprising and very important commitment to the institution of slavery. So this quotation is, uh, Nitschmann is asked, uh, is told by uh, two, uh, two people in Copenhagen that they would grant freedom to any slaves who converted, a gesture that they thought was both moral and efficacious. And to their surprise, Nietzschemann replied, such an idea would just make them hypocrites. The apostle said, whoever was called to be a servant should not seek to be rid of his place, but rather remain a menial laborer and serve his master according to his desires. That way the masters will also be convinced and they will rejoice when their Negroes convert. So Nietzschemann's insistence that enslaved people should specifically not be manumitted after baptism was an important influence um, and adaptation to West Indian slavery. And it also allowed him to, uh, I think that it's important to recognize, it also emphasizes, it's, it helps him uh, show his commitment to pietist reform and his recognition um, or his belief that uh, enslaved people could easily take advantage of a religious opportunity to improve their standing. So just after you know, a short visit to St. Thomas, he'd come to the conclusion that Christianity had to be uh, divorced from freedom in order to uh, prevent both opportunistic conversion and planter wrath. <coughs> so most scholars have sort of associated this type of argument with planters or um, say, or suggested it came later in the history of Christian missions. But this, I think, shows sort of Nietzschemann's very quick change um, in his belief about the relationship between slavery and freedom, shows how this was an immediate adjustment to slave life. And it's also interesting to note that it's Europeans who've not lived in a slave society who continue to asso associate Protestantism most strongly with freedom. Planters in the Caribbean, meanwhile, also tended to connect Protestantism and freedom, which is one of the reasons that they developed Protestant supremacy and often refused to allow their slaves to convert. So it's the missionaries, with their strong desire to promote genuine slave conversion um, and their desire to convince slave owners that this is okay, uh, they're the ones who are the most invested in this argument that uh, slaves would remain slaves even after they were freed from their spiritual slavery. So aside from their theological commitment to slavery, Dober and Nitschmann also return with material commitment in the form of slaves of their own. So their decision to uh, purchase their own slaves shows how fully Dober and Nitschmann had come to embrace the idea that spiritual freedom could coexist with earthly slavery. So Nitschmann arrived in Copenhagen with an enslaved boy named Jupiter. Um, Dober, Dober brought back Oli Carmel. Um, both of them were young boys. And while Jupiter lived longer in Europe, it was the young Carmel who made the greater impression on the Moravian records. After arriving in Herrenhut in 1735, Dober reported with pride that, quote, the young Moor had traveled, quote, 1,400 miles from Guinea to St. Thomas and 1,500 from there to Herrenhut. 
Indeed, Carmel, who was identified as Luango, had been born in Africa, lost both of his parents during a war before being captured, sold into slavery, taken to the Danish West Indies. In St. Thomas, he was purchased by the Moravians and then brought back to Europe. In Herrenhut, Carmel quickly became seen um, and was beloved and was seen as a, quote, sign of grace. Sinsendorf wrote that the young boy, quote, had a burning love for the savior, even though he knows very little German. And despite the objections of some who considered Carmel to be too young and too uneducated, the brethren concluded that he should be baptized as soon as possible. Uh, so on August 22nd, 1735, just over four years after David Nietzschmann's chance meeting with Anton Ulrich, the seven-year-old Carmel was baptized. He was baptized Joshua, and he died the following March at the age of eight. Yet despite, or perhaps in part because of, the shortness of his life, Carmel became a poignant symbol of Moravian missionary pride. Carmel could forever be remembered as the first fruit, the embodiment of the Moravian's global reach. Oldendorp viewed Carmel's baptism as a prelude to the work they would do to carry the gospel to all heathen, and Carmel himself was immortalized in this first fruits painting from 1747, and in the first Moravian plantation in Jamaica, which was named after the young boy. Um, so I'll come back to this again, but uh, Oli Carmel and Jupiter are the two boys in the front and center, um, and Emmanuel is behind them. Carmel's revered place in Moravian history contradicts with that of Anton Ulrich, the Afro-Caribbean servant who instigated the mission. So unlike Carmel, who died before he could question Moravian theology, Ulrich's relationship with the Moravians was more complicated. In 1734, after Dover had been in St. Thomas for two years, Ulrich returned to the island of his birth as a free man, and he set to work as an overseer before purchasing a small plantation and a slave of his own. Once in St. Thomas, though, he drifted from the Moravians. Dober considered Ulrich to be, quote, too weak in order to stand up to the violence of his sins and stay true to what he knew. Um, although, you know, again, this is clearly a self-serving judgment. But what is clear is that Anton Ulrich decided to pursue his own path in St. Thomas as a small-time landowner uh, and slave owner, and the Moravian brethren were no longer compatible with his convictions. The missionaries' failure to sustain their relationship with Ulrich was an early indicator of the problems that they would have attracting educated black Christians into their fold. For Ulrich, like most other black Christians on St. Thomas, being a Christian was very much connected to uh, freedom, among other things, and education. From Ulrich's point of view, the Moravians had initially, initially provided an opportunity for travel and companionship, and he hoped that they would aid the members of his family who were still enslaved. But the Moravians' judgmental condemnation of most Christians as unawakened and their embrace of earthly slavery created a wedge between the missionaries and the man who inspired their mission. So I want to conclude by connecting this sort of uh, story I've told today back to the larger project. Um, so first of all, as I've tried to show, it's really Protestant missionaries rather than slave owners who have the most incentive to argue for the legitimacy of Christian slavery. Quaker and Anglican missionaries, like the Moravians, reacted to Atlantic slavery by seeking to integrate slaveholding into an evangelical Christian vi vision. So not all of their reactions were the same, but they all responded to the anti-conversion sentiment 
and to Protestant supremacy by emphasizing the importance of slave conversion and urging slave owners to reform their worldviews and practices. Second, the Protestant missions to slaves were intimately connected with the development of racial categories. So my talk today sort of showed that the Moravian involvement with slavery resulted in a change in the way that Moravians understood race. Um, but the, the larger book looks more closely at the, the broader development of racial categories in the Caribbean. So as I've sort of mentioned before, in Barbados, Europeans um, referred to themselves as Christians in their law books in 1650. And by 1750, they'd replace that word with white. And finally, a trans-regional and multi-denominational approach um, helps to understand these interconnected histories of race, religion, and slavery. And this is particularly true for uh, the history of missions and conversion. So I'll end by going back to this painting of the first fruits. Um, so as the painting shows, the Moravians perceive themselves as a global church. They viewed the conversion of Africans, Native Americans, Greenlanders, Persians to be integral to their identity. And they traveled the world to illustrate the universality of the Christian gospel. But as much as this painting tells us, we have to remember who's not included. So as I mentioned before, we have Carmel and Jupiter in the center of the painting. Behind them is Emmanuel, uh, the enslaved man who embraced literacy as a form of honor. And around them are other converts. But Anton Ulrich is not in this painting. So despite the fact that he inspired their mission, Ulrich was not memorialized because he not only drifted from the missionaries, but actively criticized the brethren and their approach to slave conversion. Carmel, by contrast, whose short life didn't provide an opportunity to question the missionary enterprise, was an easier figure to idealize. So as this painting suggests, while Moravians actively projected an image of themselves as a global church, the reality was far more complicated. In response to criticism from black Christians like Anton Ulrich, who resented the separation of freedom from Protestant conversion, the Moravians began to rely increasingly on tropes of death to attract um, enslaved people in their, into their fold. They told converts that death would end their miserable slavery, and they recounted stories of former converts who had already died and met their savior. So George Carries, the first missionary to Jamaica told his converts in Carmel, for example, which was also, this is the mission station is named after um, young Joshua. Quote, when we die, our souls go to the dear savior in heaven and our bodies rot in the earth and we will get new bodies made better than they are now, such as our dear savior's bodies. You will be no more blacks, no more slaves and your souls and bodies will meet together. So it's in life rather than death that spiritual freedom would reign. Thank you. So I guess I take questions. Yeah, sure. Yes. Did the missionaries talk about that? Oh, yes. So the question was, uh, did the missionaries, in their arguments about uh, why slavery should coexist with Christianity, did they quote um, sort of medieval, is that right, medieval Christians? Uh, they would, 
they mostly would quote refer to the Bible um, rather than uh, than sort of people in medieval than medieval Christians. Um, I'm trying to think of an example where I see sort of specific historical uh, Christians used in an argument, um, but it was more like far more biblical. Um, and of course, they also would refer to you know Catholic slavery um, because of yeah right this is it's all over the place. Um, what's that? <laughs> right, but I think it's more important to sort of be biblical in the argument about why Christianity and slavery can be reconciled um, rather than uh, sort of quoting historical figures. Um, but yeah, I'm sure that there is some example of that, but I'm not, the biblical ones are the ones that come to my mind first. Uh, yes, in the back. Um, do you know what This is uh, a great question. I've tried to figure that out, right? Because, um, so it wasn't Ligon who was, it was the slave owner who was saying, this is against the laws of England. Um, you know, and there's, there are some laws that were passed uh, in England that sort of say, oh, England is, um, the, the air in England is too pure, too free, and you can't, you know, and there's this perception that, if an enslaved person arrives in England, uh, that that person just is automatically going to be free. Um, and I think this is really important for why you see the development of Protestant supremacy, because that idea, these, this linkage is so strong. But when it comes to actually actual laws, um, the, the, the most sort of recent research into that has shown that although there are a few laws that sort of seem to say that you know, when a, uh, a slave, and I mean, there's one case where it's a Russian slave in, arrives in England, that that person um, should be freed. Actually, what would end up happening um, is either, you know, there's, they, it doesn't really matter, there's still enslaved people all over England, or that person might be um, sent elsewhere, uh, but also remain in slavery. Um, and so it's less a reality than it is a perception, but it's one of those really important and persistent uh, perceptions that I think has a really important impact on the development of slave law in the Americas. Yes. Uh, I was going to ask, given uh, all this Catholic uh, back and forth, what is it in your mind about Protestantism that makes the law and specifically the law of race develop in this way and that, well, I think that it didn't in right. Yeah, this is, I, you know, I have mulled over this question for so long um, because what I, you know, what I don't want to do is say there's some, I, and I don't actually think it's true, I don't think there's something inherent in Protestantism that's, that's so different. Uh, one of, I think that there are a lot of different factors at play here. Um, so one is uh, the basic bureaucratic structure of different empires. I mean, the way in which, uh, you know, the, the Dutch and the, English empires are often, colonies are founded. Um, there is, there are often private companies are, have a huge amount of control. There's a lot more, there's, there's not as, as much centralized authority as there is, um, you know, in, in Spain and Portugal, you have the Padroado Real and the Patronato Real, which, where in which the, the crown is the, you know, they're the, it's the head of the church and there's a lot of administrative cent, um, centralized authority. Um, and I think that that has a really big impact when it comes to sort of the development of the slave laws in the Americas. Um, there's also, uh, 
right? Well, we've talked about sort of the fact that there, there were slaves in England and elsewhere. English, English people and Protestants were familiar with slavery, uh, but it wasn't as, there, there wasn't as much of a sort of a legal tradition in English law. So that's another reason that people give um, for why things develop differently. Um, but I also, you know, this is the mid-17th century in England, you know, this is the English Civil War, the, the national church is disestablished. This is, you know, if you're gonna promote your conversion, this is a, you're probably not in a great position to, to do so. And so I think that the fact that um, the timing of the development of Protestants, slave colonies, it, that's a really important aspect as well because what ends up happening is that Protestant slave owners basically just create a new slave law, right? And in, in 1660 is when the Barbados slave law, which becomes the template for later slave laws in the Americas, is written 1660. You know, this is there's just been a civil war, um, and so I think that I, while there are sort of theological aspects to it, I think that administration, bureaucracy, timing, um, these are all they sort of coalesce into this strange moment in which this is how the slave code develops in the. Um, in places like Barbados, and then is copied elsewhere. Uh, yes. How, how does the uh, economic argument play into the justification by Christians that slavery is okay? What, what part does it play? You've not said much about the economic advantages of having slaves. Right. Right. Well, I mean, the the I think that the 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 reason that in 1660 these Protestant slave owners come together and they write a slave law that uh, basically defines a, a, an enslaved person as as by definition not a Christian person um, has everything to do with their economic interest in wanting to protect this uh, their property. I mean, that's it's it's pretty. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, no, it's absolutely in their interest. And this is, but it's, I should also say, 1660, like, the, there's been such a dramatic importation of enslaved people during the previous 15 years on Barbados. There's also a real rush to try to sort of control the demographic situation, um, and that also feeds into the way in which the slave code is uh, devised. Uh, yes. Um. I have a question about uh, how missionaries are, how they prioritize um, mm. humanity, right? So why is it that it's the slave versus the master that we're trying to convert, right? And it's just assumed that the master is Protestant, but then all the arguments against the master that he right? Are, right. Are, are not right, right? <laughs> <laughs> why isn't, why isn't it for, for focus? Right. Okay, so for the, the answer to the first question, 
you know, often it's not the priority for missionaries. So the Anglican Church, when they finally, you know, get around to sort of creating a missionary society in 1700, they specifically say, our first priority is white people. You know, we first want to convert all of those, basically, like, we want to get the, those Moravians and the Quakers to be, be Anglicans again. And our second priority are Native Americans. And our third priority are, you know, enslaved and free black people. Um, and so there, there are a few missionaries who try to argue with the, the Anglican Church and say, actually, um, you know, slavery and enslaved people should be more of a focus. Uh, but the, but the reality is that you know the people that I'm looking at, it is a minority of the actual missionary um, efforts that were happening in the 17th and 18th centuries. Now, the Moravian Church, the answer to that question for them is also pretty fascinating. I mean, is first of all, they're driven into being a global church because they're being persecuted in Saxony. Uh, so there's a political component, and then the second political component is that I, they are allowed to um, to preach in in these slave colonies but they're not allowed to convert white people. So they're, they specifically, and this, this sort of is fleshed out even more in their Jamaican mission, which happens a little while later, but they specifically are, you know, have to keep reassuring everybody, don't worry, don't worry, we're not trying to convert any white people to become Moravians, we're just trying to convert um, enslaved and free blacks. And so there's, uh, it's sort of different for each of the um, denominations and each, each denomination prioritizes different populations in a different way for pretty specific political reasons. Uh, yes? I have two questions. First of all, you said you said you could say a little bit more about the paper roll in uh, the system. Yes. You know how large it was, and if there was anything that, distinctive, uh, that distinguishes Quaker behavior toward enslaved people, especially their enslaved property, right. uh, from that of other groups. And then the other question is, did the uh, Africans in Barbados, were they from the same origin in Africa? Did they share a language? Did they share religious practices, pre-Christian religious practices? Right. And I also, I realized I forgot to answer your second question. I'll come back to it. Okay, so the, um, your, right, so uh, the Quakers, I, so the question is, what role did they, like, how great was their role? Yeah. Were they number-wise? Yeah. In terms of economics, and if, if there was anything that was distinctive in their behavior towards their... Uh, so the there were um, a few th thousands uh, Barbado, uh, Quakers in Barbados, um, and I think it was something like all but four owned a slave. It's so they, it's a pretty significant population, uh, overwhelmingly slave-owning. Um, and. I think that at first there's not really a difference in the way in which they treat enslaved people. Um, once George Fox sort of comes to Barbados in 1670, and sort of he, he actually urges there to be a change, um, and specifically says, you know, uh, you should meet for worship with uh, uh, with your the enslaved people in your household, and so he sort of. He places sort of the ideal of the godly household back into this conversation about slavery and Protestantism. You know, I don't have evidence for exactly how, um, what the Quaker sort of slave-owning household looked like, but I do think that at least from George Fox's perspective, he was aiming to reform it. Uh, in terms of uh, the, the first, the other one. Oh. Uh, it was diverse. Um, I don't remember. I mean, Ligon actually says uh, that 
you know, they speak mo many different languages, um, but I don't know uh, the exact uh, sort of breakdown. Okay, your second question was, um, can you remind me? Whether you have um, slaves who have converted um, in finger as masters. Oh, so the, oh, yes. Uh, the, question, the question was, um, so uh, slaves who have converted, do you then see them pointing their fingers at masters saying you're sinning? Yes, yes, yes. I think that actually, I, I think that that is also another um, sort of benefit of conversion, and you absolutely see this all the time. Um, the enslaved converts sort of criticizing white Christian practice, uh, and I think it's, you know, a, a powerful critique and, uh, and an important one. But yeah, I mean, you see them critiquing the missionaries um, and arguing, arguing with them about various scriptural issues, uh, and that comes through in the missionary records, but what comes through even stronger is how uh, how sort of vehement the critique of slave owners is. Yeah. Was that critique because they were owning, critique of them for owning slaves or just critique of, of them for being a different religion than the You know, it's not, I, it's more that uh, sort of that they're unchristian in their behavior. Um, than the fact, the, the actual fact of um, owning slaves. But, and you had a question? Yeah. Two uh, quick comments and a question. I don't know whether you've seen uh, Marcus Redeker's recent book on Benjamin Lang. Mm. Um, I, I know of it, I haven't read it yet though. But he questions the sort of dating of right. when Quaker anti-slavery started. I think mm. he overdoes his case, but it is interesting. What does he say? Well, uh, Lay, Right. was a very difficult Quaker mm -hmm. in England who kept being disowned by his meetings. Yeah. Uh, wound up in Barbados. Uh, Redeker, of course, is interested in, the, in uh, the Atlantic sailor. Right. As a kind of Marxist, uh, anti-imperialist writer. Alayas keeps the sailors. He goes to Barbados. He's totally horrified. He winds up in Philadelphia. Right. Where he again gets own eventually winds up as a hermit, but he goes to lots of Quaker meetings mm -hmm. uh, before we really think of Quaker um, anti-slavery, uh, and very dramatically uh, does recruit what turns out to be the next sort of generation of Quaker abolitionists. Uh, that much, I think, is yeah. something to say. But anyway, it's, it's an interesting book to yeah. think about the, the Quaker situation. Uh, it seems to me that um, my, my film is British, really, mm -hmm. and uh, Anglic recruiting Anglican missionaries was always very difficult because it's a learned clergy. You spent money to go, to go to Oxford and Cambridge. You're a gentleman. You're you're annoyed enough if you have a living in Wales or Ireland. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you get sent to India to be a military chaplain, that's all bad. But to die of a fever in the West Indies is not really anything that <laughs> Anglicans were right. eager to do. Uh, you know, it's a radical contrast with the Baptists later in the 18th century. And, and some of the Quakers earlier, these are poor people who don't have that much to lose. Mm -hmm. They're willing to go out to India or willing to go to the West Indies. Uh, and they're not looking for creating a learned church, mm -hmm. although they are interested in literacy. But 
but my, my question actually is about whether you thought about uh, Native Americans mm. in this mix. Because, as, as you no doubt know, uh, Native Americans were less interested in missionary outreach. The Moravians mm -hmm. did have missions to Native Americans. Uh, they got Native Americans killed by frontiers right. as a consequence of this. Uh, but in, in Native American spirituality, as it begins to emerge in the Seven Years' War, you see some Quakers accepting Native American spirituality as, as valid a way of inner life as their own spirituality. Mm -hmm. And they start society for Indian rights in the middle of the war before they have an abolitionist society. <laughs> but, but what happens on the Native American side, it seems to me, is that um, by the mid-18th century, pretty much around the Seven Years' War, you start to get different indigenous peoples beginning to have their own idea of Indian nationalism, mm -hmm. which they want to, uh, which they, right. they need to unify small, increasingly small tribes against Britain and then eventually against America. So this is clear, the Delaware prophet, Newland, right. and Pontiac's rebellion, mm -hmm. and then later, certainly during the American Revolution, uh, the Cherokees mm -hmm. uh, and the Shawnees get together despite a good deal of previous hostility around dragging canoe the Cherokee, and they reject radically, consciously, what white civilization. Mm -hmm. They're not interested in Christianity like like Neil, and they think that their way of survival and uh, cultural preservation is a kind of Indian, Indian mm -hmm. religious nationalism. Um, well, sure. I mean, I guess I could connect it here in terms of how do you how do you build a coalition of people against sort of uh, you know white settler society or against white slave owners? Um, and I would say that you know slave rebellions drew on there are examples of uh, of slave rebellions drawing on Afro Caribbean religions um, like you know 1760s uh, 1760 revolt in Jamaica. Uh, but then there are also, you know, I think that uh, eventually Christianity does begin to begin to uh, also be a way in which um, enslaved people can come together and in, and and sort of in sort of ref, uh, comparing it to some, something like Neolin and uh, the the consolidation of a new community does play a role in that also. Um, so yes, I would say I think about it. I mean, I also you know the Moravians are an interesting test case for. Uh, group of missionaries who, I mean, there's one missionary who first is working in North America and Pennsylvania, Ohio, who then gets transferred to the Jamaica mission and, you know, sort of has a very strong reaction to what he sees there as sort of a way in which Christianity is uh, being, uh, being uh, practiced that is very different from what he had seen in the Native American missions that, um, you know, it's interesting to think about it exactly what what that kind of history means. But yeah, I think it's an important comparison to make, um, and it's one that I've thought a lot about. Uh, but it's it's hard to say that there's one answer to give to uh, to that. Thank you. Yeah.
Oh, okay. So, what, if, you, if there are any remaining questions, oh. maybe you can catch sure. after, but I think we should conclude, but let's conclude by thanking you. Thank you so much.